Welcome to the Retail Focus Podcast, a weekly collection of news, interviews, and information from the world of retail. Welcome to this edition of the Retail Focus Podcast. I'm Trent Kling. Coming up on this week's episode, we'll be joined by Stephen Wagner, the Chief Commercial Officer of SmartCart. He'll talk about some of their mobility products, how shopping centers are using their products to keep shoppers around for longer periods of time, and he'll talk about the development in these type of products in the mall space over the last 20 years. A news grocery outlet comes through with the solid quarter, but more importantly, they detail some of their SKU count developments and their plans for expansion a little bit further, and we'll look ahead at basket thefts in retail as more bag ordinances or one-use bag ordinances go into place throughout the country. A quick reminder that you can check us out on social media at Retail Podcast on Twitter and Instagram. I know Layton posted some pictures from my recent trip to the first ever JCPenney store in Kemmerer, Wyoming. This store, well, in theory, was the first ever, but the original burned down The second store was moved, and so the store that they call their mother store was actually built in 1929 and finished there. But you can see pictures of the pulley that was used to transport money to and from the office for each transaction. Also, the original cash register, JCPenney's original outfit, in fact, was preserved in the store. And it's kind of like half working store, half museum. What's interesting, I thought, was the fact that JCPenney actually provides a lot of historical information to the employees. So unlike most JCPenney locations, the employees there have to know quite a bit about the history of the company, about the history of the store, and some idiosyncrasies of the location, like which items are original to the location. In talking to store staff there, they said about 50% actually of their store traffic is there because it is the first JCPenney store, and they're just driving through and stopping in to see it. The other half are maybe local shoppers that are there, but the positive for them is the fact that that store, at least as far as they are told, will remain open as long as all the other JCPenney stores remain open throughout the country. They said they have promises from corporate that it will be the last store to close as it is kind of a working museum. So that's very interesting. If you get a chance to visit Kemmerer, Wyoming, which it's not really in the way of much. It's in far western Wyoming in kind of a rural area, but if you do get the chance to visit, I do recommend checking it out if you like retail like we do. All right, let's jump into Grocery Outlet. We discussed their eastern expansion in a recent looking ahead, talking a little bit about their mid-Atlantic plans, but they released earnings on Tuesday, August 9th that gave us a further view into how the inflationary landscape may be affecting them, and how their East Coast stores are doing in actuality. Quick primer for those who may not be aware, because they are kind of skipping through the middle of the country. They're not in every market, of course, but Grocery Outlet is a chain run by independent operators in a franchise-type model, but the company itself does the majority of the buying for these independent operators or on their behalf, especially as it pertains to their off-price items. Each grocery outlet store is a mix of off-price items and everyday products, similar to what you would see, I think, in a big lots maybe 15 to 20 years ago in the 2000s. 
Most stores, most grocery outlet stores I've been in are about 50-50, it seems, with more of those overstock-type products or off-price items in the center of the store. But it does vary based on location. They have a significant fresh selection, both produce and meat, and this fresh selection has become more substantial over time. They have well-publicized relationships as well with major brands. In fact, logos of a lot of major CPGs adorn their investor relations page in the background. Currently, their store base is largely along the West Coast, but they expanded to Pennsylvania a few years back, and as mentioned before on the show, they're attempting to expand further in the Mid-Atlantic region as of this latest quarter. They have 425 stores, and those were located across California, Washington, Oregon, Idaho, and Nevada in the west. And then over on the east, you have Pennsylvania with the majority of their eastern stores, but also newer stores in New Jersey and Maryland. They added seven total stores in this most recent quarter alone. Note that their store count has grown by quite a bit, nearly 30% in the last three years during a time in which a lot of grocers slowed that brick-and-mortar expansion due to the pandemic or maybe investments in e-commerce but also construction, supply chain issues, none of these things has slowed grocery outlets' brick-and-mortar expansion down. Their overall target across the country, looking long-term, is 4,800 stores, but there's no set timeline other than their aspirations for about 10% store count growth yearly. So they want the store chain to be over 10 times larger than what it is currently, but again, this growth figures to be managed over time. Now, given their rapid expansion, an increase of top-line revenue was to be expected for this most recent quarter, and that's exactly what was delivered. They saw net sales increase by 15.7% in the quarter to $897.7 million. But expansion was not the only source of revenue for Grocery Outlet, as their comps were extremely impressive compared to their regular grocery brethren. In the rest of grocery, we've seen comps mildly positive by single digits or in some cases negative by single digits. But for grocery outlet, comps increased 11.2% over 2021, and that puts their three-year stack at 17.9%, which is a little bit closer to being in line with what we see for most of grocery for those three-year stacks. Comps were up as a result of both traffic and ticket increases. Also, comps saw strength across nearly all product categories and were up despite the age of any individual store. Essentially, their older stores or their original stores saw just as much in the way of sales gains as their newer stores did, although some of the newer stores in the eastern region comped out especially well. Their mid-Atlantic stores did outperform the company average when it came to comps. Continued skew expansion was part of the reason management gave for the continued increases. We'll talk about that here in a second. Along with their e-commerce efforts, Grocery Outlet has a fairly new e-commerce presence compared to other grocers. They've now, just as of the last quarter, rolled out DoorDash to all of their stores. In-stocks were also up for them year over year, so kind of a perfect storm plus people looking for better deals in the marketplace. As a result, they saw traffic increases throughout their store operations. And as could be expected, these sales gains, both top line and comp sales gains, were leveraged into adjusted net income gains of 23.6%. 
They posted an earnings increase of $0.29 per adjusted diluted share en route to earnings overall of $0.23 per share, beating analyst expectations there by a nickel. Inflation was mentioned pretty much immediately in their prepared release. It was mentioned a ton on the call. They were asked a ton about it by analysts. And Eric Lindbergh, their CEO, noted that the inflationary environment was driving customers to attempt to stretch their budgets and as a result, driving customers through their doors. Comps indeed outperformed most inflationary metrics for food during the course of the last year, and their solid second quarter led to the company revising their full-year expectations. The company actually bumped up comp expectations for the full year up to increases of 8 to 8.5% across their store chain versus 55 to 6.5% increases that had previously been expected for the full year prior to this quarter's results coming out. And CapEx is expected to remain steady for them. Margins likely to remain steady as well. So inflationary impacts not striking those margins for grocery outlet. As a result, they project those better-than-expected comps to contribute an extra 3 to 5% in earnings per share versus their prior forecast. Of course, to meet grocery outlets' ambitious plans for continued growth, they require additional independent operators to run the new stores planned, and this was a large topic of conversation on the call when we talk about them wanting to increase store count by 10% yearly to the point where they have over 4,000 locations in the U.S. eventually. Of course, with those independent operators out there, you have to recruit more of them in this type of model. Now, they don't call it a franchise model, but they're big about specifying that these are independent operators. And the focus for them is training and recruiting more of these independent operators or IOs, as they call them. They say their current pipeline of, and I quote, aspiring operators in training or what they call in shorthand at the company AOTs is significant interest continues to be high in their path to ownership programs. And this isn't unlike the programs in place at many QSRs. I think Domino's would be one of the first to mention there. They provide a path to ownership for both current employees and also outside parties that are wanting to kind of get into the operations part of the business. Their AOT programs at Grocery Outlet begin with a selection process. In essence, not just everyone off the street can run a grocery outlet. Obviously, there are some financial stress tests as well that go on on the back end. But that all continues with various forms of in-store training as you move through the AOT program. And in fact, in May, they went so far as to host their first AOT Culture Day as a way to connect these AOTs with present operators and hasten the training process along as they receive not only in-store training as far as what it takes to become an independent operator, but also systems-based training that they can complete on their schedule as well. So this was obviously a major topic of conversation as analysts want to know hey, you want to open all these stores. Are there enough people around that want to become an independent operator for a given grocery outlet store in order to sustain this growth? And I think the answer on the call, at least for right now from management, is yes, there is. And finally, they echo the sentiments of other off-pricers with regard to product availability here as we head towards the back half of 2022. President R.J. Sheedy noted that various supply chain issues and unpredictable demand from traditional grocers has caused, in some cases, 
a backlog of inventory that CPGs need to move. And this, in turn, has created buying opportunities, just as it has, say, in clothing segments for other off-price retailers like the likes of TJX and Burlington. And Sheedy actually mentioned in detail one such opportunity on the call. They purchased 90,000 cases of biscuits and cinnamon rolls from ACPG and in turn were able to pass the product on to their customer base at a 75% discount versus ordinary prices as these products got funneled through the stores run by those independent operators. The more this type of thing occurs, of course, the more they claim that that top-of-mind awareness when it comes to grocery bargain hunting for customers will increase regular traffic going forward. And when asked by analysts on the call if the buying environment was easing it a bit, for them that is becoming a bit more challenging as people get on top of supply chain issues and the like, leadership said no. Demand curves, the unpredictability there, resulted in more product available to them at a discount than ever before as we head into the last few months of 2022. And additionally, these relationships that they have have bolstered their SKU expansion along with everyday items. We talked about that balance of the bargain hunt type items versus the everyday items. They actually added 150 new everyday SKUs in the past quarter alone, so over 600 in the past year. Fresh and ethnic products leading the way in terms of growth, in terms of those everyday products and fresh certainly a buzzword in terms of growth that we've heard a lot in grocery to this point in 2022 they've also added a handful of private label products but are still very much in their infancy as far as private labels are concerned depending on how you look at it they mentioned on the call that they feel as though private label opportunity is still very much ahead of them i think if you were to word it a different way they may be a bit behind in building that portion of their SKU count because that's something they've talked about doing for the last few years. And an analyst asked about it on the call. They said, hey, lion's share of the opportunity is in front of us. So if you look glass half full, that means they have a lot of opportunity ahead and further opportunity to grow sales and market share. Glass half empty just means that they haven't been able to develop that to its fullest extent as yet. Finally, regarding their expansion, they were asked about potential for maybe Moving a little bit further north or south along the East Coast, markets like Boston and Virginia were brought up on the call. Management said that while that type of thinking is attractive for them, they're still focused firmly on building out the Mid-Atlantic first, so that Pennsylvania, Maryland, New Jersey, Delaware region, target of 250 stores for that region before stretching out a little bit further on the East Coast. But they do like the rooftop density along the East Coast as a whole because it's similar to what they're accustomed to in California, which would be considered their bread and butter as far as operations are concerned. So it gives you an idea as far as how they want to expand. They really want to saturate the markets that they're in to begin with before jumping into different markets in the country. And so I would say that if you're in, say, Missouri or Wisconsin or Minnesota and you're waiting on a grocery outlet store, you might be waiting a little bit further until their current markets along the West Coast and in the Mid-Atlantic region are saturated. Well, that'll do it for the news segment on the podcast this week. Coming up in our next segment, we'll be joined by Stephen Wagner, the Chief Commercial Officer at SmartCart. We'll talk about some of their mobility products, some of their products designed to keep people in shopping centers for longer periods of time, 
how those are administered and some things that may not meet the eye as far as making sure these products get into these shopping centers and are maintained appropriately. We continue with our ICSC interview series and now we're going to be switching gears to talk a little bit about something that you see in every retailer, in every mall, but we're going to talk about how it gets there and how it's placed there. We're pleased to be joined by Stephen Wagner, the Chief Commercial Officer of SmartCart. If you've been to any airport in the country, you've probably seen a SmartCart before for luggage, but we'll talk about some of their services for retail. Stephen, thank you so much for joining us today. Yeah, great. Thanks for having me. So, just as a kind of an establishment, I know we talk about airports a lot when it comes to SmartCart, but what are some of the retail services that you offer? Sure. So, yeah, as you mentioned, very common to see us in the airport space, but we've actually been a leader in the retail space for about 30 years now. So strollers has been around for almost 30 years now in properties, and we also do massage chairs. We've been in that business for about 15 years. We also do electronic lockers, ECVs, wheelchairs, a number of different services for malls. So let's focus on the stroller part of it. For those that don't know much about the stroller space within a mall, how has that changed since you've become a player in this space? Yeah, you know, not too much, to be honest with you. It's, there's always a new three-year-old, is kind of what we say. So there's new people kind of coming through constantly. There's been a lot of change as far as how customers interact with our product and also just kind of general family makeup. 30 years ago when we got into it, there was not as many opportunities to get second-hand strollers, for example. So more people needed a stroller at the time because maybe they only owned one. Now you can go to Facebook Marketplace or eBay or wherever. Everyone's got them in their trunk. So that has changed us a little bit. We have to create a product that actually wants to draw kids in and is different than the stroller that they have at their house or the umbrella stroller that they have in their trunk. So we have to make it fun and exciting for the kid who we found more recently is actually the driver of the decision to rent a stroller than the parent. The parent wants to just not, you know, dealt with the hassle and be halfway through their shopping trip and be like, oh, now I have to carry my kid around as well as my bags of stuff. But it seems like it's more the kid now who they come through the door and they go, that looks cool and just hops in it. And they want to drive it. And we see a lot of times that the parent's like, okay, sure. You know, it's entertainment for the kid. And they're actually the ones who are purchasing the stroller now. And there's a lot that goes into the design of it. If you look at the strollers that are available out there, some are hammock style, some look like a race car, some have tablets built in. In terms of technological developments, what are some things that you've kind of integrated to make sure that that kid who's in essence purchasing the cart because they're driving the decision is visually attracted to that stroller? That's exactly it. It's, it's making it look cool and fun. And we've done a couple different things. Our kind of bread and butter one is our Smart Wheels product, which looks like a race car, has a steering wheel and everything. But you're right, we did a lot of things with the tablet. So that was a new innovation that we did almost 10 years ago now where we integrated a tablet into the stroller. So the kids had something to do. You know, speaking of how things change though, almost everyone has a phone and tablet now. So that phased out quicker than we thought it would. And now it's about trying to just grab their attention with something that looks fun and cool they want to drive it. They want to touch buttons. They want there, there has to be stuff for them to touch and feel while they're in the mall for hours. And I think one other thing that probably doesn't occur to people that just walk by and, and see strollers in the mall 
there are a few different ways that property managers can go about placing these. They can be, as I understand it, passive revenue streams. They can also be essentially run by SmartCart if you wanted to. So what are some of the dynamics in terms of financially as those property managers are making decisions for those, how they determine which route they go? Yeah, for the most part, we do concession. So we're the ones who are putting all the investment into the property and operating it. We do have a few locations that, that decide to buy it. There is complications in that. Mall groups in general don't want to deal with the hassle of it. They get lost. They get stolen. You have to deal with credit card payments and PCI compliance and all sorts of different things that really don't make a whole lot of sense for mall groups to get involved with. So most of them are very happy to do concession model where we take care of everything. We take care of the operation. We take care of when they get lost, replenishing it and putting more in. So that's the direction that most malls go. And there's a lot more that meets the eye to a stroller than one would think. You mentioned compliance as one example of that. From the outside looking in, what's one thing that maybe doesn't occur to people about, say, a mall stroller that is very, very important from the inside? Yeah, for the stroller part of it, child safety is huge. And then we create a nested design. So it's all about trying to get them into a small space. You don't want to have a design where you're taking up a ton of space right at the entrance area. So by designing it so that they all fit together nicely, you can be more efficient with your space. And then it's a better opportunity for the mall. And the other side is just the safety side of it, making sure that there's no pinch points and there's brakes and there's seat belts and all that type of stuff is very important from a safety perspective. So let's pivot now and talk about some of your mobility solutions. We're here at the booth. We've got a a couple of those here. So again, kind of the same thing with the stroller. It's something that maybe a lot of people don't think about if they don't use it. But what's the importance from a retailer or property manager's perspective to make sure that people that need those mobility solutions are well taken care of? Yeah, each mall handles it differently. And as there's less guest service areas now in malls than there used to be. So it used to be something that was kind of provided. And now I think malls have to rethink about it because they don't have those information desks and guest service areas where they're able to hand out wheelchairs and ECVs. We do it in two different ways. One would be a concession. So someone has to rent the product as they go around the property. The other one would be where the mall offers it free for their guests. And the goal is to allow them to spend as much time in the mall as possible. And really that's kind of how all of our products work is you're just trying to keep them there. And if they, their legs are tired, they're tired because they need a massage, their kids are complaining, all of that stuff is really just trying to enhance the experience so people can stay there as long as possible. And so when you look at the you know, average mall customer, as you mentioned, you might not have everyone that's interested or even needs one of these mobility solutions. But in terms of design, in terms of what you are providing to malls, what are some of the key areas where you see particular demand in terms of maybe functionality or in terms of how those items are structured so that people can easily get around? It's about placement a lot of times. So what we're working on is trying to find where it's the easiest place where people can get this product and use it throughout the day and also return it properly. So some of our large malls, it's where bus stops are or where other people may come in. Let's find a spot where we can put this product and make it as easy as possible for the customer. SmartCart is mostly in the background on all this stuff. We we take care of the maintenance and make sure it's working, but it's really trying to work in partnership with the malls on that. 
We talk about maintenance. What type of maintenance does a stroller or mobility solution entail? And what's the life cycle on these products? It's, it's more than you think, right? You, you take a look at a stroller and you say, you know, we try to make it as bulletproof as possible, but there's a lot that goes into it. We spend a lot of time researching, you know, the casters and the wheels and making sure that it's rolling smooth. And again, with the safety pieces, you have to make sure all the seatbelts and everything are working. From the stroller side, it's a little bit different. It's about cleanliness. There's goldfish crackers and juice and all that type of stuff. And, and unfortunately, some other things that I don't want to get into that end up in the strollers. It's about keeping those clean. And especially now in a post-COVID world, that's a very important piece where our people are going around making sure we do some deep cleaning. We, we take them out. We power wash them. We have to do a number of things to make sure that they're, they're clean and sanitary. For the ECV, it's a little bit simpler, I, honestly. And it seems like it would be more difficult because it's an electronic wheelchair. But... It's well designed and we can go in and fix you know, individual pieces as they come up. But we've got a national network, so we're going through all the malls on a, at least a weekly basis to make sure that everything is up and running and clean and working properly. And it doesn't surprise me that children are destructive by nature. <laughs> That's kind of how it works. When COVID did hit, March 2020, what was that acceleration like for you guys at SmartCart? And what were some of the conversations that you necessarily had to have about cleanliness, about maybe ramping up, not just in terms of your scheduling and that type of thing, but also in terms of conveying that message to your stakeholders, to the malls, and to the ultimate customers at the end? Yeah, it was a complicated time, right? And you know, we're diversified, but we're diversified in a lot of areas that require large groups of people, right? Airports, theme parks, malls, all of that, you know, was shut down and had to be rethought of. The first hurdle was really just getting them turned back on. Because a lot of times, even when malls were reopening, they're like, it's a touch point. We're not really sure how this spreads. At the time it was thought of, right? Handles and all that type of stuff was how it was spreading. We didn't know it was airborne at the time. And even when we did find out it was airborne, you know, we adjust slowly, you know, as a society and people were still washing groceries, right? So it took a while to get to that point. We did a number of things, adding wipes to our kiosks so people could do it themselves because we just simply can't be there and washing all of the handlebars after every use. So we had to work really closely with the mall groups and our airports, figuring out different ways that we could allow people to self-clean it by having those wipes and, and other things that they could do to the handlebars before they used it. So by the same token, we've got this massage chair over here what type of cadence did you see as far as people maybe returning to be okay to use a massage chair in a public place? How comfortable were people in terms of getting back to that over the last couple of years? You know, surprisingly, they came back fast. And I don't know if it's just who uses our products or if it's just people were over it by the time, you know, got around to it and, and people were just excited to go out and do stuff. But the business has been really healthy. People have been very resilient and using products. I think our capture rate's probably higher than it used to be. And maybe it's just who's coming into the malls and who's not now. But we've been pleasantly surprised at how fast people are coming back and using all of our products across the board, whether it's strollers, massage chairs, luggage carts, lockers, all that stuff. People are looking for those experiences. And we're a small part of that. We understand that. But as they're coming back to all of these different properties, they are willing to, to use any of the products, it seems like. So now let's look ahead. Over the next three to five years, as someone, again, that deals in this space on a day-to-day -day basis, what excites you about 
the next three to five years worth of development in terms of improving people's experiences when they're in these public places? I think COVID gave a chance for everyone to kind of reset and reevaluate what was important. And we certainly did that at SmartCart, but you see kind of industry-wide, right? Everyone had to take a step back and say, what's going to happen over the next five years? Because you have to prepare. You're trying to you know, deal with the fire in front of you, but you're trying to set yourself up for the future. So it's exciting because everyone took a step back and, and had a strategy session. And it felt like, especially in the mall industry, it was struggling pre-COVID, right? And I, it almost seems like this was an opportunity for everyone to reset and say, how do we want to build our malls of the future? So for us, it, it got us an opportunity to build new products, new kiosks, new stroller, we're working on a new locker platform. There's a lot of things that we're working on because we had the opportunity to kind of take a step back instead of trying to deal with all the little fires that are going on on a daily basis and say, how are you going to move forward? And what is the customer looking for? And it's tap to pay and it's easy to use and self-service. And, and that kind of fits with what we do. So I'm excited that how strong things have rebounded. I think people are more interested in experience. You know, once you're locked in the house for a year, it seems like people are quick to take vacations. They're going back to those type of things. They're going back to the mall. They're spending time there. They realize that's important. You know, you don't just want to sit inside your house. Go and do stuff. So I think at the end of the day, it's really helped the mall industry because it's given a chance for everyone to take a new look at it. Well, it's fantastic insight. We appreciate the time. Once again, Stephen Wagner, CCO at SmartCart. Thank you so much. Thank you. As always, we may have a position in or against companies we discuss on the podcast. Do not invest in stocks solely on the input of the podcast hosts. Well, we are appreciative of Stephen Wagner joining us on the show, taking time out of his ICSC schedule back in May. And with that, that draws to a close our ICSC interview series. We will be joined by those both with ICSC and adjacent to ICSC to talk a little bit about diversity in retail and diversity in retail real estate. Excited to hold those conversations currently scheduled for September here on the podcast. Well, in our Looking Ahead segment, one thing that I think if you've traveled the country, if you've paid any attention to retail that you're becoming cognizant of is the fact that we've seen certainly an uptick in the amount of of regulation regarding single-use plastic bags, and for good reason. I think if you've ever gone to California, let's say, since a lot of their bag ordinances were passed, it's certainly a lot more convenient, at least for me, to pay the 10 or 20 or 30 cents for a multiple-use bag for a little bit sturdier bag than to get some of those single-use bags for free. And it forces me to think about, certainly, remembering those reusable bags from the car. I use the reusable bags as often as I possibly can. But even this last week, I mentioned I went to Wyoming, and Wyoming has passed similar ordinances there where in some markets you don't have the option to get plastic bags at all. You can buy paper bags instead. Some other markets have multiple-use plastic bags that are available there for purchase. Well, New Jersey is one of those states that also enacted a ban on single-use plastic bags. They actually did this back in 2020, but the law was just enacted three months ago to give shoppers and retailers time to make adjustments on the back end. These new reusable bags that are offered by grocers can be retailed at a price of 33 cents a piece. 
It has had, however, unintended, maybe, consequences at grocers there, as grocers like ShopRite, for example, have seen an increase in the baskets in store, not the grocery carts necessarily, but the baskets leaving and not coming back. And this is happening both at ShopRite, Stop and Shop, and Acme, some other grocers in the New Jersey region. And this is a problem that has been reported here and again, both in New Jersey, but also in Wyoming, the very state that I had visited to an extent also in Oregon, Connecticut, and Seattle, some other places where you've seen these bag ordinances be put into place. And according to the news website nj.com, many of the stores that were contacted in the individual locations, the store manager said, hey, you know, once we ran out of baskets, we decided not to order anymore because every time we would reorder baskets, more people would just leave with the baskets as a result of being charged the 33 cents for the plastic bags. So the reason I'm looking ahead is because we're likely to see more and more and more of these bag ordinances put into place. And like I said, I, I feel like just personally, there's good reason there. Obviously, the more we can reduce the reliance on single-use plastic bags, the better it is for everyone involved. However, people walking away with store baskets is not better. So are we going to see more retailers transition to maybe something a little bit more like an Aldi model where you have to put in your quarter in the shopping cart and then you have to return that shopping cart to get your quarter back? If people are willing to take a store basket because of not wanting to pay for a 33-cent bag, maybe that quarter is incentive enough for Aldi. Do we see the disappearance of the store basket? And also, what kind of loss prevention measures will be put into place for those that would like to keep those baskets around? I know, for example, Kroger chains would love to keep those baskets around. Do you see use of the magnetic tags on them, maybe, to send those alarms off as they leave the store? What mechanisms do retailers put in place there to make it a little bit easier for customers to walk in and walk out. Now, obviously, some retailers, you think about warehouse clubs, they haven't ever had to worry about this, really, and it's just kind of common knowledge. Also, Aldi is another retailer where you look and they force you to have that quarter to put into the shopping cart, which you get back upon return of that shopping cart, but they've also been charging for bags for a very long time, and people there work around it, oftentimes bringing in their own shopping bags, using the boxes that are on the shelves, Will customers get used to this type of thing as these ordinances spread in theory throughout the country? Obviously, certain states will be slower to adopt these policies than others. Or will we see maybe an increased difficulty in terms of the shoppers who are actually using those baskets and need the baskets for convenience, being unable to use them and being forced to use shopping carts? What's that dynamic look like there for retailers on the back end? I think those handheld baskets have become such an icon in retail, it's hard to imagine them going away completely. But again, if you're seeing wholesale theft of these baskets, maybe you do see those go away. You see customers forced to use carts or maybe forced to use their reusable shopping bags, which is oftentimes what I will do instead of using those handheld baskets. So I'm anxious to see more than anything, not only how retailers respond to this, but also how customers respond to this. And in 10 years, what this dialogue looks like in terms of making things convenient in stores for their customers without also losing 8 to $10 every time a customer carries one of your baskets off with them and does not return them. Well, that'll do it for this edition of the Retail Focus Podcast. 
For McKenna and Leighton working behind the scenes, I'm Trent Kling saying so long until the next podcast. We thank you very much for listening and we look forward to joining you again soon. This has been the Retail Focus Podcast. For more, visit our website at retailfocuspodcast.com and subscribe on iTunes or Stitcher. Follow us on Twitter at Retail Podcast.